0: Brothers of the plow, the power is with you. The world in expectation waits for action prompt and true. Oppression stalks abroad, monopolies abound. Their giant hands already clutch the tillers of the ground. Awake, then awake, the great world must be fed, And heaven gives the power to the hand that holds the bread. Yes, brothers of the plow. Hello, the and welcome back to the American fed. Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast and in this episode i'll talk about uh i guess this will be part three of my review of the gilded age by by mark twain and charles dudley warner um yeah i think um there's some really interesting thematic things going on now it's a lot more of the same i mean the theme of this book is just about the corruption in every area of american life um through uh, basically centered around a land scheme involving this uh, this Tennessee land was it twenty five thousand acres a huge amount of land but presumably not worth much but as the nation expands and develops and you have federal efforts to invest in land out in the west remember in those days like Tennessee it, it's of course it's post Civil War Tennessee so it's you, you also have kind of the politics of of reconstruction where you have money coming into the south right all the capital in the south evaporated because it was all land and slaves and all the people kept the land it wasn't worth as much without the slaves um if you were a rich landowner in the south that's where you put your money in so that capital evaporated but new capital came in right this is where the idea of the carpetbagger comes in but of course there was uh a lot of booster in the south too. a lot of southern people are trying to get that northern capital in for investments and so there's that but also remember like most of even the area on the mississippi wasn't fully settled yet right it would take the rest of the century for the frontier to close but you know there's always going to be empty spaces in in america not fully developed because the population was not that big spread over this huge and expanding territory so there, there was there's opportunity to be had in places like that, especially with the industrial age, because of what event you know what comes out of this is like searching for coal, searching for new transportation routes, maybe a railroad to go through there. There's all these types of out layers to um, the, the, the industrial age, the post Civil War America, the empowered federal government opened up all these opportunities for for scams maybe not if you don't want to say scam speculation essentially and so we kind of get in the weeds in that stuff in this part of the book um leading us towards the climax of the story which does have a more personal side to it but thematically it's it's really the the gilded age or even our characters are gilded in certain ways we have dreamers and people who are like natural speculators we have people who are basically good like um Senator Dilworthy, who seems to be on the right side of history, he supports black rights and land redistribution and investment in the South for for helping free um, men and women. But at the same time, he's just as corrupt as everyone else, right? Uh, we have Ruth, who sort of gets corrupted by, by love to a certain degree. We have Laura, who goes to Washington and becomes something different when she's there. Um, and eventually her past comes up to hit her her, her, herself. So to, to come back and hit her, you know, in a very direct way with the return of her ex-husband, Selby, whether they are actually extra married, I'm not sure. I think because it was a bigamist thing going on there, but she she was abandoned. Remember during the civil war. And then he shows up again, um, and kind of leads to her crisis. So, uh, Now, one character who might be an exception to this is is Philip. Remember, he's the one who has kind of had a relationship with that Ruth Bolton. And their investments in property and land play a role in the Washington shenanigans as well. But uh, like, because you got like Sellers is trying to get like railroads cut through those lands. And there's there's all these different ways of trying to uplift that value of the land and, and, and make profit off of it. But Philip who we are kind of left made to believe is kind of the one good guy we have here or honest, is actually surveying, it's actually Ruth Bolton's father's land, Mr. Bolton's land. And he's trying to find coal, which is actually an actual commodity. It's actually, there's value there. So if you can find coal and that raises the value of the land, that's actually a legitimate reason for raising the value of the land because there's something valuable there to extract. It's not just speculation. Right, and and obviously, Mark Twain had thought about this before. If we read Roughing It, which Roughing It was written after this, remember the events of Roughing It took place a few years before this was written. This was, remember, his first uh, major work. He's still a young man when he's writing this, right? In his late 20s, early 30s or so. But uh, so he understood the speculative markets in a personal way because he experienced them in, in Nevada. But anyways, um, I, I do think it's interesting that we see philip here involved in, in some kind of actual legitimate um Schemes but but a lot of it comes down to like where the railroad's going to be and 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 of course if there's coal You're going to want to have a railroad through there to extract that that wealth. So much of the industrial age is just about transportation cheap transportation and geography right. So, um what do we have here? Of course, throughout all this, Phil, uh, Sellers um, again, we can think about his name, Sellers. He's a, essentially a con artist and his name reflects that he is continuing to uh, play the speculation game and the lobbying game in Washington, trying to get um, these schemes to. And he's using people like Washington Hawkins, the son of that Hawkins family that owns all that land, Laura, the adopted daughter of the Hawkins family, using them uh, as essential lobbyists. Now, there's a really interesting section in around chapters 32 and 33, I think mostly chapter 33, about just the general society in Washington. Um, and that's something that Laura, when she finally gets there, um, she was kind of involved in the scheme to some degree, but now she's actually in Washington as a physical lobbyist. And she encounters um, the Washington elite and the class structure in Washington. And it's very liquid in a way in that you have a lot of class jumping. You have uh, people who are of old wealth and you have that aren't as wealthy as some of the new wealth people. You have people putting on heirs and you have this this kind of liquidity of of this. And then, of course, one of the first things Laura does when she gets there. And she gets new clothes. So she herself, you know, her, her class status is a little confused because she's um, got some education. She comes from a family that's potentially wealthy, but not really wealthy, right? It's like there's, a, there's all that land they have and they have something to build a family fortune on. But she herself is not really from wealth. She doesn't have the money to throw around in quite the same way outside of the fact that she's, you know, working. Essentially, as a lobbyist for these other players. Um, so the sense we get here is of this this liquid class um, structure, and um, I see we see this partially with that character Harry, who's a more carefree guy, who's maybe not as tied to like the rules, but he like is flipping in his courtship between Ruth and Laura in this part of the book too. And that, even that, even the romantic, the love is, is kind of liquefied here. But class is the heart of what our authors here are trying to get at, it, it seems to me. Um, so we have um, the old money people. Laura goes Laura, through Laura's point of view chapter, one of her point of view chapters, we get a, a window into this class structure. We have like the old time elite, um, the old wealth. Um, now, of course, in a way, Washington. I don't know the history of Washington. Washington's, of course, a new city. So what does it mean to be old wealth there? The city itself was not much of anything before the Civil War even, right? I mean, I guess there was, it was a slave region, right? Before the slave trade was, the slave trade was banned in Washington and in, in the fugitive slave law, right? And I don't think it was banned in Washington, D.C. till the Civil War broke out. I mean, slavery itself. So I guess those would have been slave holding classes, but there's not much land in D.C., so it wouldn't have been the land-owning class. I, d- I don't know who quite makes it up. Maybe it's rich people from elsewhere who came and settled there. Um, but they're the old money. Just like in any American city, I guess you'd have this this old wealth. Um, then you have the, like the new rich, right? And these are people who you know, are able to like make money, off, made either made money off the war or made money off of the the corruption of the era, they're the most gilded, I guess, of them. They're like people like sellers almost, right, who who they're putting on airs a little bit and they, they and it's just like when we think about old wealth and new wealth today, you have the same thing, although I think the new wealth to these days, like the Silicon Valley types, they don't try to play that game quite so much, like even someone like Elon Musk. You know, kind of pretends he lives humbly and he tweets about how he doesn't actually have that much money because everything's in his companies or whatever. But, you know, it's all bullshit. But I guess you don't have to play that same game of like wearing tuxedos everywhere and putting on the top hat and the monocle and and, and playing the consumer game to try to be part of the old wealth or aristocracy. Um, no. uh, anyways... In this time, in the time he's writing, that's still part of the game. The rising class is trying to put on airs um, and and interact with with this existing elite class. And then you have like essentially the Washington middle class is made up of entirely almost entirely of bureaucrats, right? And these are people who, in a sense, are also getting their position through corruption because this is still the era of of civil service jobs being doled out based on party loyalties, right? This is uh, the civil service exam reforms, the civil service reforms in the exam system. That's not even fully intimate, implemented until the end of the 19th century. And I think well into the 20th century, many government jobs were still like distributed by parties. And the way that would work, I, th- I talked a little bit about this in an episode or two ago. But the way that would normally work is you would support a party, you would help get them elected, and these would usually be people of lower class or middle class backgrounds, and they would, after the election, they would be, there'd be all these new government jobs. Everyone who had a government job before with the old administration would be canned, and a whole new group of people would be brought in. It was a way of paying off your supporters, right? Is that corruption? I don't know. It, it was kind of a wealth redistribution to, from the losers to the winners in a way or from the public offers to the certain class of supporters. But in places like New York City, it was really key for the Irish Americans, right? The ones connected to the Democratic Party and Tammany Hall to get some of that public dollars. Otherwise, they had very few ways of getting it, right? So this is an interesting class of people. Um, but let's, let's look at one of these uh, new wealth people um they write petroleum was the agent that had suddenly transformed the gashleys from a modest hardworking country village folk into the loud aristocrats and ornaments of the city End quote so they they're unuplifted uplifted poor people right another group he mentions the honorable patrick Orlier was a wealthy frenchman from cork not that he was wealthy when he first came from cork but just the reverse when he first landed in new york with his wife he had only Halted at Castle Garden for a few minutes to receive the exhibit paper showing that he had resided in this country two years and that he had voted the Democratic ticket. And went uptown to hunt a horse, he found one and then he went to work as an assistant for an architect and builder carrying a hod all day and studying politics evenings. Industry and economy soon enabled him to run a low rum shop in a foul locality and this gave him political influence. In our country, it is always the first care to see that our people have an opportunity of voting for their choice of men to represent and govern them. We do not permit our great officials to appoint in, or to appoint the little officials. We prefer to have so tremendous a power in their own hands. We hold it safest to elect our judges and everyone else. In our cities, the ward meetings elect delegates to the nominating conventions and instruct them who to nominate. So so it gets into like the spoil system I was just talking about here, but you have these characters here and they're kind of listed one by one. We got a Patrick O'Reilly and others, but these are all um, people who started out poor or immigrants and got uplifted to. um, To wealth and became fashionable through participation in consumer culture by their address, I suppose, by their social circles and and all that and and this is a pretty long chapter that gets into the the dynamics of these two aristocracies. Now Laura has a has a meditation on which side she should kind of affiliate with. And she kind of says we should go with this uh, this new wealth type, maybe because they're closer to her own class background that make her um Um, just as ridiculous they're just as ridiculous in their like pretensions and the way they show off and things like that but she sees uh them a little more natural to them because they can't fully disrobe their their poor backgrounds in a way and that makes them a little more comfortable to her but ultimately she she kind of um sees herself as better than both these groups um, but anyway, that, that's an interesting chapter. And a little more about Laura is in a later chapter, she actually goes to a, a bookstore. And this is some like meta commentary that the authors are giving. Because if we remember, they wrote this book because they thought the books that their wives were reading were, were trash and and overly sentimental and, and not just not good. So they said, we're going to write a book that uses the same conventions and plot devices and tricks, but, but write it. In a better way right i'm not sure they succeed in that um i think in a way it becomes not really it's a great book but i'm not sure it's that differentiated from maybe i mean a lot of those novels no one reads anymore so i'm not quite sure what kind of novels are complaining about like dime novels kind of the equivalent of smut novels or whatever but i, I think i'm thinking sentimental literature is really what they were complaining about um and anyway, Laura at one point goes to a bookstore and she's looking at like fans, she's looking at like Longfellow and you know, Melville or what I guess Melville wasn't popular. She's looking at the the classics. And the clerk the worker comes by and says like why don't you read these? And it shows them like the Fifty Shades of Grey or something. Like this is the kind of book for you young lady. And And she's like, no, I really want to read serious books. Um, This is really some meta commentary in a way. But I also want to say that this is really made me think of of Mary Wollstonecraft, because this was if you've read A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, it's actually a very, very fascinating um, book. I think it's more radical every time I I think about it and go back. I I see it as actually more radical and that she's almost talking about eradicating gender because her, her a lot of her argument has to do with education. And saying, like, we are, like, really the difference between men and women comes down to how we're raised and how we're educated and what books we read, right? And she points very specifically to sentimental literature, the same kind of stuff that Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner are complaining about in this book, by saying, like, you, women are reading this kind of stuff, and then that kind of skews how they look at the world and it, it accounts for their actions and behaviors and how they interpret the world. And the answer to this is let's, you know, women should read better books, essentially. Mary Wollstonecraft says we should just read the same books men read and be educated the same way as men. And if you're saying gender is a product of education, right, if you can eradicate those differences, then you're essentially eradicating gender uh, differentiation, which I actually think is a pretty good thing. I'm all I'm, I'm well down for it. I think we all should right no no need to have like transgender people if there's no gender right if people are just what they are um that'd be that'd be splendid the same way we kind of want to get rid of race right we still have racial bias in our institutions and and racism is alive and well but you know the hope is to be post-racial someday right well can we be post-gender and what would it mean to be like i guess being transgender in that circumstance wouldn't really amount to much. It would just be cosmetics, right? Which is, I guess, the anti-trans people, that's their criticism, right? They're saying it's just cosmetic. But if you take away gender as a differentiation between people, then it it sort of just is cosmetic, right? But then it wouldn't even make sense to talk about transgender, right? Uh you wouldn't even have men and women. So, not that Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner are that radical, but I think Mary Wollstonecraft might have been, um, in a way. Um, What else we got here? Um, We got uh, a lot more here in this part of the book about Senators Dilworthy, and we got a new another guy, Senator Balloon, who... Now, both of these people end up being kind of corruptible or corrupting, but it is interesting that what Senator Dilworthy wants to do with this land, this Hawkins land is build up like a black university. So he is pretty authentically pro the freed slaves. He wants to improve their life. Remember, this novel is set like right after the Civil War, like months and just months after the Civil War when that's really, it's still in the middle of Reconstruction politics. Right. And unfortunately, it's probably books like this that helped give Reconstruction a bad name. Of course, there's a lot of other books that did it much more overtly. But by focusing on this period as an era of corruption, you know, it's, you know, people used to learn about Reconstruction as an era of of just political corruption and not one of, of. Of expanded liberties and opportunities for for black Americans. Right. That. Yeah. Like that. Washington was changed by the war and any politics. I mean, that's the brutal reality here, right? Like any politics that's going to be good has to be corrupted, right? You can't be a purist when it comes to politics, right? You want something good, you're going to have to maybe do some dirt on the side. I don't care personally. I'm not, I don't don't care that my politicians are corrupt as long as they can deliver. If they can't deliver, then yeah, then I suppose corruption is bad. But people who just complain about corruption or influence or things like that without actually looking at the end end results, I think that's a little misguided. Um, What else we got here? Oh, I guess the the last thing to talk about, I know I I was supposed to go chapter by chapter through this stuff, but I haven't been doing a very good job here. Um, But I guess the other big thing like wrench that gets thrown at the story at this point is the return of the colonel another colonel yeah colonel selby yeah he's another colonel just like colonel sellers colonel selby returns and and here's the tragic thing in this part of the story is essentially um well i think laura finds out that selby comes back and so laura tries to she basically arranges for to 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 meet with him privately but she he doesn't know it's her It's like some other meetings arranged. And then she shows up, so it's just him and her, so she can confront him about abandoning her earlier in her life. That happened, I think, before the Civil War. Or maybe right at the end of it. It happened a few years before these events. Um, And what you might expect to happen is she stands up for herself, and I guess in the modern novel, right? You get that. You'd get, uh, she would spit in the eye of her former husband you know and get her comeuppance and and and, and embarrass them publicly and, and win the day <coughs> that's what i might get today in a novel what readers might have expected at the time would be like a rekindled romance and a, a redemption arc for for both characters um and we don't get that instead we get like nothing changes she's just wooed by him again and she just um in the same room with him she she's easily gives into his words and laura's been presented as this um you know rather moral character she kind of resists harry's uh, advances she seems professional she seems like the new woman in many ways um but when she's put in the position of mr like being with mr shelby again colonel shelby she falls back into these old habits so it's kind of uh definitely the authors here are playing with the conventions that would be expected but it, it really creates a very very tragic character who is, herself is kind of gilded in the way she presents herself publicly now there is a, a Chekhov's gun here a literal gun and where laura buys a gun so another way of reading this of course is that that's all play acting it's setting up her her attempt to murder selby later Spoiler alert. But um, but I don't know. I, I found it believable that she was kind of, I found it more like satisfying as a reader that she does go back to her old patterns of of, of, of loving this man as, as horrible as he has been to her in the past because that happens so often in life, right? How often do people just show up with the flowers or the sweet words? And, you know, one partner or the other, often I think when we think, in pop culture, it's the women who do this. Go back to the man, and and why? Well, it's because women don't have the same options, right? You know, the, the biological clock ticks. If you don't get a man in time, you know, it has social stigma, especially in these de- those days of the that the novel was written. So there's more pressure on women to conform to to get married, to marry up maybe, and so she's i i it's more satisfying to me that she's she is legitimately falling for it that the that the pistol purchase is a maybe a subconscious thing or it's on another level of her of her awareness maybe there is that hatred and that rage about it but but i'm not sure she's decided to to kill him at this point but but um we'll we'll come to that i guess in the next episode so um a lot of good things in this part of the book. I guess it's uh, thematically it's a lot of the same a lot of the same stuff, but I do fi- I do find the stuff with Laura really good here, And especially the description of the class dynamics in Washington at the time. So uh, yeah, that's I guess that's all my thoughts on that part of the book. In the next episode I'll finish up what I want to say about the Gilded Age, and then we'll jump to um, The American Claimant. I think The American Claimant should be two episodes. Then we'll have uh, two more Tom Sawyer stories. And then um, so three, five, six more episodes on Mark Twain. Wow. Coming to the end. It's been fun. I could still do the stories and short writings but I don't think I will. I think um, I actually have something in mind. Kind of a special. I was going to go back to women. But I I think there's another um, group I want to talk about first. I think I'd like to go back to to talk about Black Americans for a while. So I want to maybe do Albert Murray. um, Maybe some Baldwin. Did I do Douglas yet? I haven't done Douglas. So if I'm going to do Albert Murray, um, who's kind of a cultural critic from the... Civil Rights Era, but some really interesting work. Um, I think if I do that, I want to do then Frederick Douglass. I did Johnson. I did do boys. I did the Harlem Renaissance writers. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't do Douglass. Did I do the slave narratives? I don't think I did the slave narratives either. So I think I have enough to do another mini series on on black Americans. Um, and that'll get me through the summer, I suppose. And then, then I think I want to do a uh, Carson McCullers, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, and, and kind of do another, a sequel to the 20th century Girls series, maybe, and do the, maybe even bite my teeth into Edith, uh, uh, Wharton, um, but Wharton and James, those two, I don't know. They're, they're, they're a struggle for me, but maybe, maybe always there's always time to get to those and I, i certainly will at some point um but we'll see where it goes but that that's the plan so a few more weeks of mark twain then we're gonna jump into uh albert murray should be fun so anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I'll finish up with The Gilded Age next time. I'll see you on then. The plow, come rally once again. Come gather from the prairie wide, the hillside and the plain. Not as in days of yore, with trump of battle sound. But come and make the world respect the tillers of the ground. Awake then, awake.